Fear is natural. Faith is supernatural. When we don't understand, when we can't overcome, we react in fear. It's natural response. It's human. Fear is who we are. But our fear may paralyze us in depression. Our fear may leave us in indecision. And it may even motivate us to unwise or even sinful actions. Yet when we turn to God, when we trust in Him, we react in faith. And it's a supernatural gift, faith is. And our faith can provide perseverance to hold on. Our faith may be rewarded beyond even our own expectations, just as the Bible says that God can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we ask or imagine. That's faith. Now, we may not all be like Abraham, who Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 21 says, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promises. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and it is this he brought, uh, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Faith. Fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. We waver, we worry, we wonder. We have anxieties, we have fears. All these things are natural. Our own reason may lead us to a reasonable rebellion where we do what we think is right and we miss out on God's faith. The Apostle Paul said of faith in Acts chapter 20, he says, I have one message for Jews and Greeks alike. The necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. I think that's the key for us. As you sit here this morning and you listen to my introduction that's a few words about faith so far, you're going, I don't have that kind of faith. Man, I feel bad already. What's the key? Paul said so right there. The key is repenting from sin, turning to God, and having faith. When you don't have faith, repent. When you don't know where to go, turn to God. And that's going to lead you in the right direction. As Manly Beasley said, a genuine step of faith is never a leap into the dark. On the contrary, it's a wonderful leap into the light. Our faith is based on a relationship with God, and our faith grows as our love relationship with God grows. Remember, God so loved you that He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, that if you believe in Him and trust Him to be your personal Savior and Lord, that He will save you, not only for eternity in heaven, but for an abundant life here on earth. And He wants to grow in that ongoing personal love relationship with you if you'll spend time with Him. God pursues us if we will respond. So our sermon today on the spirit of the church in the world takes up Acts chapter 9, verses 20, 32 through 43. And we'll get there in just a moment as uh, we're actually going to circle back to our scripture memory verse for the month. See, next week we're going to get to Acts chapter 10 and talk about Cornelius. And the week after that we're going to get to Acts chapter 11 and take up the question of prejudice. What a great question as we think about racism and judgment and all sorts of things like that in our world today. But it's there in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. But our scripture memory verse for the month comes from that passage. And let's say it together. Acts eleven seventeen. So if God gave them the same gift He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Acts eleven seventeen. If you're intrigued by that, you might want to go ahead and read it and see who's talking and what they're talking about. 
It's a poignant scripture. We'll get there in a few weeks. But as we consider our passage of scripture today and think about that last week we had considered, or last time I preached to you two weeks ago, excuse me, we had considered Saul and his conversion on the Damascus Road and the first things he did in the church. What we're going to see here in the book of Acts, as Luke tells the story, is that he set Saul aside for a little while. Saul goes back to Tarsus, his hometown, and he doesn't come back into the story until Acts chapter 13. Now, Luke, as a good writer, mentions him two other times, once in Luke, uh, or Acts chapter 11 and once in Acts chapter 12, to remind us that he's still there if it's the first time you're reading the book of Acts. You know, you keep hearing about this guy Saul, and you get the idea that something big's going to happen with him sooner or later. Well, after Acts chapter 13, it's pretty much the story of Paul, who was Saul. But what we see here is uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, concentrates again on Peter, and he tells us three stories, and all three stories involve some sort of controversy or confrontation. The first group of stories today is about Aeneas and Dorcas and their healing. The second story we get through in Acts chapter 11. So what we want to do now is turn our attention to today's passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, I'd ask you to do that. As we read Acts 9, 32 through the end of the chapter. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Verse 36, in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda. They sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived and was taken upstairs to the room, all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Let's pray together. God, we've read this passage of scripture and we may have some idea of what's going on. We can see a healing. We can see a resuscitation. But there's other things behind the scenes here that you want us to learn. This idea of a life of worship, a life of faith, that because of who we are, because of how you saved us, and because of who you are making us to be into the image of Jesus, our Lord, our life is defined by our worship for you and our faith that fuels that worship. So God, it's our prayer that as we see these people in this story, they wouldn't just be flannel graph cutouts in our minds, but they'd be real. And we'd see who they are 
and what they were doing, and we would be challenged to live a life of faith just as they were. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Thank you. So in verse 32, you see that Peter traveled about the country. What has happened now as the church has a period of peace, the apostles are going out as missionaries. And we've had our first Samaritan. Remember, Samaritans were like Jews, but hated by the Jews. Our first Samaritan converted. And now Peter is going a little bit further down the road, and we're going to lead to our first Gentile converted, Cornelius, in chapter 10. But he's in this area that is still full of Jewish people, and he went to Lydda. Now, Lydda is about 20 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem, and Joppa that he goes to after that is 10 miles further northwest. Joppa is the modern-day port of Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, that's still there today, a major port for Israel. And so Peter is working his way that direction. And he says he traveled about in this itinerant ministry, and Lydda would be a key city because it was on the crossroads of two major roads, the road that went from Jerusalem up to Joppa, and then the road that went from Egypt all the way up around to Syria came through there. So it was a hub city, a city that anybody who wanted to impact the world or the region would go to. And you notice even it says the region of Sharon in verse 35. And he found Aeneas, who was paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. My friend Mandy, who's the double amputee, people don't ask her how she's doing or how it's going. Their first question they always ask her is, what happened? She kindly says, well, I was in an accident. She doesn't tell them how horrific the accident was or that it was somebody else who caused it to her to lead her to be a double amputee. But our first question of Aeneas may be that same question. We might want to ask, well, what happened to Aeneas? The Bible doesn't tell us what happened. It just tells us that he's been paralyzed for eight years. Can you imagine a life in which you can't use your legs? Maybe you've known somebody who's been paralyzed. Maybe they've been close to you. Maybe you've assisted them. And maybe you've seen and have an idea of what that's like. When I was a kid, there was a guy in my church I grew up in. His name was Jeff, and Jeff was cool, man. It was the 70s. He had cool clothes and cool hair, but he was like one of these Jesus freak sort of dudes. He also loved riding motorcycles, dirt bikes, he called them. And then he had an accident in which he lost the ability to walk. I'll never forget the first time Jeff came back to church and he was in a wheelchair. And he still had his cool hair and he still had his cool clothes and he had kind of a cool wheelchair. But he wasn't the six foot two swaggering around sort of Jeff he was before. He was rolling in. And my heart just broke. It was amazing to see how his faith grew over those years, and even as me as a kid observing him, and how God brought him through that. And here is Aeneas, without presumptively the ability to have a wheelchair, and people having to carry him place to place, and all the sort of things that may have happened back in those days, totally dependent on others. Peter walks up to him, and what's Peter say? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The first point on your outline is that Peter's faith empowered him on mission. 
Peter's faith empowered him on mission. It led him to leave Jerusalem. It led him to go to Lydda, a place where presumptively he didn't know anybody or not that many people. It led him to preach the gospel, and it led him to see a man who was paralyzed without knowing anything previous about him and pronounce to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Does anybody else get the size of that faith? (laughs) Jesus Christ heals you. Now, Peter, remember, had spent three years with Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus heal people. Peter had seen Jesus do miraculous things again and again and again. And remember, in John's gospel, it says, if everything that Jesus did was written down, the the whole world couldn't contain all the books of it. What we have in the gospels is just a little sampling of what Jesus did. Peter had seen all these things. Peter had been there, and he had preached, and 3,000 plus people had been saved on Pentecost. Peter had seen the Spirit fall as fire. Peter had heard people speaking in tongues that they didn't know. Peter knew all these things. He knew the power of God. So maybe it wasn't a stretch for Peter to say, Jesus heals you. And I look at my life and I think, I've never said to anybody, Jesus heals you, because I don't know that God's told me to do that, and I don't know if I did it. Would God do it? I'm being honest with you. I don't have the faith that Peter had, but I hadn't seen the things Peter saw. Maybe it was I hadn't stepped out like Peter had stepped out. I don't need to compare myself to Peter, and I don't want you to do it as well, but since it's a question you may have like I may have, I'm wading into it, right? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. In this miracle and in the miracle to come, Peter followed the example of Jesus and the way he pronounced it, the faith he had. Peter performed it in the power of Jesus. And Peter did it for the glory of Jesus, as we see in the verses to come. Those are important things for us to remember. That as God calls us to live, He may not give us the ability to miraculously heal someone at our word or at the touch of our hand, but God does call us to faith that should empower us on the mission He's called us to. He may not send us to the town of Lydda. He may not even send us to Beatrice, but He sends us in the town that we live in. He gives us our group of friends. He gives us our family. He gives us our workplace where He calls us to faith. When we walk in faith, we're directed by God. And when we walk in faith, we simply follow God's lead. All of the time, we use the phrase around here, Christ followers. We talk about being growing Christ followers. And it speaks to a relationship of discipleship that he is the master and I am the apprentice. He is the teacher. I am the student. He is the leader. I am the follower. And I follow him. Day by day in my life, I follow him. So Peter pronounced it, but let's see what happens next. The end of verse 34. Get up and take up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Immediately, Aeneas got up. The second point on your outline is that Aeneas' faith enabled him to believe. Aeneas' faith enabled him to believe. The Bible doesn't tell us. Had Aeneas had any other previous experience with a believer in Jesus? Presumptively, he was Jewish. Presumptively, he had some understanding of the God of the Old Testament in our Bibles. Presumptively, he knew these things. But when Peter walks up and he says, Jesus Christ heals you, Anita could have gone, dude, I don't even know who you're talking about. Or he could have gone, oh, I heard about that Jesus guy. He's a fake. They crucified him anyhow. He's not the Messiah. 
He could have had any other number of reactions, Aeneas could have. But what did Aeneas do? Immediately, he got up. You have to wonder if in his paralysis, if he had tried to go to doctors of that day and time that might have healed him, if he had prayed to God, if he had had other people pray for him, even other religions, or done all sorts of crazy things in order to try to regain his ability to walk. You would think that he would have. And so he could have been hard to that. And he could have said, man, you're crazy. I can't be healed. What are you talking about? These legs don't work. These legs aren't going to work anymore. But what did he do? He responded in faith. Immediately, Aeneas got up. I love the way the King James reads there. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose Immediately. He arose immediately. Aeneas acted in faith. Aeneas' action proved his faith. His standing up was trust in action. It was faith. Aeneas' action demonstrated God's power. Think about this. I have a need but I don't have the ability to meet that need. It's too much money for me. It's too much time for me. It's too much brain power for me. It's too much emotional energy for me. It's a group of people too big for me to influence on my own. I have a need. And from where I am to where that need is, the gap in the middle, that's faith. Because I can't do it, but God can do it. He can do exceedingly abundantly. In the middle between my need and my ability is where faith comes in. And if you consider the fact that God puts us in positions where we have to have faith, He causes us physically to have breakdowns in order that we don't just need the help of a doctor or a physical therapist, we need faith. He causes us to have stress and anxiety where we don't just need the help of a counselor or some medicines. We need faith. He causes us to have problems in our relationships where we don't just need to talk about it. We need faith. He causes our finances not to go far enough. We don't just need more money or a loan. We need faith. Immediately, Aeneas got up. The difference between my ability and my need, that space is where God alone can provide. That's the space for faith. And I believe sometimes in his sovereignty, God puts us in that space in order to demonstrate his glory, demonstrate our strength and faith, to teach us what he already knows that he can do exceedingly abundantly. Let's move on to the third point in your outline. The third point is Lida's faith trusted Jesus as Savior. Now, I'm talking about the area, verse 35. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, that's the plain, the area around it, saw him and turned to the Lord. I don't know how many people that were paralyzed, that couldn't walk, were in Lydda, but apparently Aeneas was well known enough that when he was healed, everybody who heard about it trusted Jesus. Does all mean all? Well, most of the time, yes. Does that mean every single person in Lydda and Sharon trusted Jesus as their Savior? It may be, or it may be that all that heard about it. The Bible, again, doesn't tell us for sure, but one way or the other, it's amazing. They saw him and turned to the Lord. When we walk in faith, 
when we walk as God directs, we're simply following God's lead. God does things that astound us. And people beyond even our own knowledge or understanding or relationships may trust in God. Think about where we started, Peter's faith to go on this mission. Peter's faith to pronounce that Jesus heals you. Aeneas' faith to believe that he was healed immediately get up. And now because of the faith of those two men, an entire town, an entire region has trusted Jesus as their Savior. Wow. So we get to our fourth point. Tabitha's faith that sacrificed for others. We've talked about Aeneas and we've talked about the time of Lydda. But now we're going to switch to another person with another need in another town, and that's Tabitha. Luke, the writer of Acts, as I said, puts these two stories together to show us about Peter, but more so to teach us about a life of worship that lives itself out in faith. As we read already, we'll repeat again in verse 36 in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, translated Dorcas, who was always doing good, always helping the sick. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that as believers in Jesus, we're created in Christ to do good works. Colossians 1.10 says that we should do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Proverbs 31.20 talks about the woman of noble character and says she extends her hand to the poor and needy. And this was the type of person that Tabitha was. She was a disciple that was sold out for Jesus. But what happened? At the same time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed, that's according to the Jewish custom, and placed in an upstairs room. Now, since Lydda was near Joppa, they had heard about what had happened at Lydda. They send some people from Joppa, two guys, down to get Peter and say, Peter, come up here. They knew the stories of Jesus. They knew the power of Peter. They knew of his faith. They knew of the miracle that he'd just done. And they want a miracle for Tabitha. So maybe I shouldn't say that Tabitha's faith sacrificed for others. Maybe I need to talk about the believers in Joppa that believe that Peter could come make a difference in the life of Tabitha and be a witness for all those in Joppa. What does it say there? Verse 39, Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the upstairs room. All the widows stood around him. They cried and they were showing the things that Tabitha had made. We think about our faith. Francis Chan talks about being lukewarm. He says, lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens because they have a savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have for them to live because they've got it figured out and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full and for the most part, they're in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. God may have blessed and provided for many of us in this room today and many watching online. He may have blessed and provided for us in such a way that we may act like we don't need faith and we may live our life like we don't need a personal relationship with Him. And we take for granted the things He has done for us, realizing that He's provided these things for us so that we might do greater things for Him and greater things to bring greater glory to Him, greater things to be in worship to Him, greater things to grow in more faith to Him. Remember, faith is the space between my need and my ability. That's the space where God works. 
When's the last time we've put ourselves in a position that we needed God to do something only God could do? We've seen Peter's faith at Lydda. We've seen Aeneas' response at Lydda. And now we've seen the things that Tabitha's done. Let's look at this fifth point. Peter's faith inspired his prayer. Peter's faith inspired his prayer. That's verse 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Peter had seen this before. He'd heard about this before. He knew Jesus prayed like this. And turning toward the dead woman, he called her by name. Conjecture that if he didn't call her by name, all sorts of dead women would have rose up. Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. Not only did the Peter have the faith to go on mission, not only did Peter have the faith to say to Aeneas, your legs work, man, stand up. But now Peter has the faith to say to a dead woman, get up. And she gets up. His faith inspired his prayer, the way that he had walked with Jesus, the way that he had seen Jesus respond in faith, he knew that God could do the unimaginable. I can't imagine what it's like to be awakened from the dead. I mean, we've got the questions, where was she? What did she recall? What was she doing in the meantime? What was her experience like? Was she just hanging in? I mean, you know, there's all those kind of things, and we read things about near-death experiences. We don't know any of that about Tabitha. But what we do know is she was dead and clearly dead. And that Peter resuscitated her from the dead. Now, we don't call this a resurrection because she died again. She was merely resuscitated. The only resurrection is Jesus because he still kept living. But Peter's faith inspired his prayer. Verse 41, it says he took her by the hand. He helped her to her feet. Then he called all the believers and the widows, the widows who so admired Tabitha because of the way she had cared for and provided them, the widows that were there mourning for her. He called them especially and presented her to them alive. Faith sees the invisible. Faith believes the unbelievable and receives the impossible, Corey Ten Boom said. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. Faith is choosing to believe that the Bible is true regardless of anything else in my life. I say, if the Bible says it, I believe it, and I'm going to do it. Even though my need's here and my ability's here, I've got faith to cover the distance that God will do it. Peter's faith inspired others to pray. Let's move on to our sixth observation of faith here. And that's Joppa's faith trusted Jesus as Savior. Just as in Lydda and the whole region of Sharon, there was a response from the people around that heard about it. It says, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Now, we might get a little persnickety and say, hey, wait a second, in Lydda it said all the people believed in the Lord. What's wrong with the people in Joppa that just many people believed in the world? I don't know. It's still a miracle. God still did it. Peter was still a part of it. He was able to heal Aeneas so that he could walk. He was uh, able to resuscitate Tabitha from the dead. And people believed in Jesus. Faith makes all the difference. 
Faith in God, confirmed to Peter, confirmed to Aeneas, confirmed to everybody in Lydda, confirmed to Tabitha, confirmed to the widows and all the gathered believers there in Joppa, and confirmed to all that believed in uh, Joppa that Jesus is God, that God has miraculous power and ability. Faith challenged Peter's upbringing, it changed his heart, it opened him to new relationships, and it made him obedient to do things that you're healed. How many unimaginable, as I said, how many of us would say to a person that's paralyzed, you're healed? How many of us would stand over a person who is dead, grab them by the hand, call them by name, and raise them up? God used Peter to do miraculous things, and Peter had amazing faith. There's one more thing to notice here in this passage of Scripture before we move on. And that's your seventh point there. Peter's faith overcame prejudice. This one may seem odd compared to everything else that's happened here. But if you grew up in a culture, a family, a place in which prejudice was real and it was just what you were taught, overcoming prejudice may be a miracle. And that's what happened here. Peter was raised Jewish and Simon was a tanner. Verse 41 or 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Okay, what's the big deal, Pastor? Tanners tanned the skins of animals to make leather out of them so that they could be used for all sorts of goods. In those days, like in these days. They didn't have the ability to make polyester and weave all sort of fancy synthetic fabrics like we do. I mean, you had cotton, you had wool, and you had leather, different types of leather. So tanning was necessary to take care of people, to take care of industry, to make things that were useful. But the Jewish people, Peter, would have seen tanning as unclean because it dealt with dead animals. It took the skin off the dead animals and it used salt water, sea water, and other things to cure the skin of the dead animals to create leather that was useful for others. So even though they needed leather, they despised the tanner. And his prejudice would have been, this guy, Simon, is unclean. But God had changed that miraculously in Peter's heart as well. That Peter overcome the prejudice that he grew up with and what his culture had taught him. And Judaism, as a follower of Jesus, was different than that. And he was demonstrating his faith in Jesus even by staying with Simon the Tanner. We've got application questions here for us to consider. And I've got four application questions to apply our sermon today and all the things we've heard about Peter and Aeneas, about the people in Lydda, about Tabitha and the widows and the believers in Joppa and all the people in Joppa and even Simon the Tanner. The first one is, what is faith? You've heard me define faith in a couple different ways this morning. There's not an answer that's going to come up on the screen. It's for you to write down. What is faith? I define faith is choosing to believe that the Bible is true regardless of circumstances, emotions, or cultural trends. There's another one. It's an acronym. Faith is forgetting all I trust Him. That's an easy one for you. Forgetting all I trust Him. So forgetting all the stuff that I see, forgetting all the stuff I'm worried about, forgetting all the stuff other people say, I trust Him. Who? Him? God. I follow Jesus because He's called us to. Faith is trust in action. 
Faith is when I say, oh, I can do that, but I actually demonstrate that I can do that. Elton Trueblood said, faith isn't belief without proof, but trust without reservation. That's another definition for you. Trust without reservation. It's not just a mental assent, though. It's faith is a verb. Eric Raymond says it this way. The empty hand of faith clasps the pierced hand of love. What a picture is that? As a follower of Jesus, that you say, I can't. My need is greater than my ability. I can't get from here to there. God, I don't have the finances. God, I don't have the strength. God, I don't have the patience. God, I don't have the knowledge. God, I don't have the intelligence. But you take your empty hand of faith and you grasp the nail-pierced hand of Jesus and He leads you across the gap. And He provides for your need exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you ask or imagine. That's faith. Your second question there is what difference does faith make? What difference does faith make? I've got one phrase to answer that. Faith makes all the difference. Faith makes all the difference. Faith does what I can't. Faith sees what I can't. What was it that Corey Ten Boom said? Oh, where's that quote there? Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. Faith makes all the difference. Tony Evans says that the level of worry in your life reflects the size of your faith. I've quoted that one before. The level of worry in your life, I can't do this, I can't do this, how am I going to do that, reflects the size of your faith. If faith grows bigger, your worry is going to grow smaller. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, all the water in the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside, nor can all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us. We've got to have faith in God that He's taking care of our ship, And our ship is going to rise above the circumstances. But it's when we allow that water of the outside world into the ship of faith that is our lives, that that's when it's going to cause us problems. Faith makes all the difference. Your third question this morning, where does faith come from? The kind of faith we're talking about, genuine, true, honest, believing, trusting, biblical faith is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's something you can ask for and you should ask for. You should say, God, I don't have the faith I need. Here's my need over here. Here's my ability over here. God, I believe you can do it, but I don't even have the faith to believe you can get from here to here, much less to here to here, or all the way to here. God, can you increase my faith? And you ask God for faith. It is a gift from God. When you worship Him, when you obey Him, when you love Him, when you pursue Him in a personal relationship, your faith grows because you grow in experience with Him. Adrian Rogers puts it this way. Here's another picture of a hand reaching out. But I just love this one, even though I already used one analogy like this. Adrian Rogers says that grace says, I love you, reaching down. Faith says, I believe you reaching up. Grace says, I love you reaching down. That's God's grace to us, giving us the gifts we don't deserve or can't earn. But faith says, I believe you reaching up. Faith requires the unknown. It requires that gap between my ability and uh, my need. And 
trusting God to fill in the difference. Your fourth and final question this morning. When do I need to exercise faith? Sometimes, just in case of emergency, break glass. Just in case of emergency, open faith. Or all the time. When do I need to exercise my faith? If faith chooses to believe that the Bible is true regardless of circumstances or emotions or cultural trends, when do I have circumstances? Well, some are scarier than others, but I live in circumstances all the time. When do I have emotions? Uh, All the time. When do I have cultural trends? More and more all the time. Every influence around us is a cultural trend outside of us trying to convince us to do something that's not of the Bible. So faith is needed all the time. Something for us to consider. One reason our God may seem so small is that we don't trust Him enough. We don't allow Him room to work. We see the difference between our need and our ability, but we don't trust God by faith to make up the difference in the middle. To grow in faith, we've got to allow God to work. We've got to exercise trust. We've got to live a life of worship. We've got to follow Jesus. We've got to go where He takes us. Take the step. Take the leap. Have faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're moved when we consider the stories of faith we hear from Acts chapter 9 this morning. We might be tempted to um, think poorly of ourselves or to look down on ourselves because we don't have faith like those in the stories we just read. But that's not the point at all. It's not to compare our lack of faith to their faith, but to inspire us. Because in their faith, they reach to you and in our faith, we as well can reach to you. So God, whatever the need of my sister or brother that's here this morning or listening online, you know their need and you know their faith. You know where you can strengthen and encourage and inspire their faith. And that in their faith, they might bring you glory by living a life of obedient worship to you. So God, for those of us that are believers in Jesus today, we pray that you'd increase our faith, that we'd surrender whatever's holding us back, and we'd take that step, even take that leap, believing in you, that you might work in answer to our faith. And God, for those that are here, or hearing my voice, that are not believers in Jesus, would one of them trust you today? Would all of them trust you today? that they'd finally step over the line of faith and they'd admit that Jesus can save them from their sins and that they'd follow Him in faith even though they don't know everywhere that relationship and life will take them because that's faith. God, we thank You for Your presence among us by Your Spirit. We thank You for Your Word. We pray now that we'd be obedient to You as we stand and sing. It's in Jesus' name.